Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child abuse, sexual abuse, rape, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Krista Pike shot awake the moment she sensed movement at the edge of her bed. Campus security was basically non-existent, and people came and went as they pleased— Even in her sleep, she was always on the offensive. Krissa strained her eyes to adjust them to the darkness. She could just make out the subtle outline of a body in the pale moonlight. When she caught a flash of blonde hair, she realized who it was. She sprang up and demanded to know what Colleen Slimmer was doing in her room. Colleen just shrugged. She claimed she was looking for Krista's roommate, but Krista knew that wasn't true. When she squinted, she could see a small blade shimmering in Colleen's hand. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll follow Krista Pike to Daryl Ship and Colleen Slemmer. We'll start with Krista's tumultuous childhood and her big move from West Virginia to Tennessee. There, she met to Daryl, the love of her life, and Colleen, her worst enemy. Next week, We'll delve deeper into Krista's relationship with Colleen as it escalates from petty disagreement to a dangerous feud. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. 
we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Krista Pike's childhood was set to be traumatic before it even began. Her mom, Carissa, had self-medicated depression with alcohol for many years. She drank throughout her pregnancy with Krista in 1975, which may explain why her daughter was a sickly child. The fact that Krista was born premature only compounded the issue. Rather than immediately settling in to the loving embrace of her mother, the hospital staff whisked little Krista away to the neonatal intensive care unit. She stayed there for four days before they allowed her to go home to her parents and older sister. Unfortunately, there was no making up for lost time. Krista's father, Glenn Pike, didn't work. Carissa kept two jobs to support the family. Although Glenn was likely home during the day, it seemed he didn't pick up much slack around the house. The place was perpetually messy. Flies congregated around dirty dishes and stacks of garbage covered almost every surface. It got so bad that family and friends avoided coming over altogether. On the rare occasions that Krista's aunt Carrie stopped by, she'd find the baby playing with tiny piles of dog poop. When she couldn't stand it anymore, Carrie took both girls home with her. She'd give them baths and fresh clothes and top it off with a warm homemade meal. They ate so ravenously that Carrie had to wonder how long they went without food. Rather than thank her sister for taking care of her kids, Carissa simply pawned them off whenever she could. It became even more of a pattern once she and Glenn got divorced. Carissa worked hard all day every day, but she partied even harder, and she wasn't going to let motherhood get in the way of that. If Carrie was busy or out with her, Carissa called on their parents instead. For the first years of her life, Krista saw her grandparents a lot more than her mom and dad, not that they treated her any better. Her mother's side of the family were tough folks. Like her daughter, Grandma Photos struggled with alcoholism, which only made her meaner. According to Krista, her grandmother had it out for her, even as a toddler. Apparently, Krista reminded her of Glenn and Grandma Photos wasn't a fan. Her punishments ranged from hurling insults to physical blows. Around this same time, Krista's health became an issue again. Carissa and Carrie were out at a bar one night when they got a call from whoever happened to be watching the baby. The person on the other end of the line sounded distraught. Krista had a seizure and they'd taken her to the hospital. 
Annoyed at the interruption, Carissa barely reacted to the news. When Carrie asked if they were going to check on the toddler, Carissa shook her head. It was already being taken care of. What did she need to stop drinking for? That described Carissa's mothering philosophy in a nutshell. When given a choice between what she wanted and what her kids needed, she chose herself every time. Luckily for Krista, she had someone there who cared enough to put her first. Her dad's mom, Delpha Pike, was the only positive force in her life. With her, Krista could actually be a kid. But love isn't always enough to keep a child safe. Grandma Delpha was a kind Christian woman who welcomed a wide variety of people into her home. One of them was a man named Ernest. We don't know much about him other than that he was a friend of Delpha's and that he was around a lot. He seemed to take a special liking to Krista, who at five years old was a bright and bubbly child with big curly hair and a sweet smile. One day in school, Krista's teacher asked the class to draw something they did at home. When she saw Krista's sketch, she grabbed Krista and the paper, then dragged them to the principal's office. Krista sat in a chair, her eyes cast down in shame. The teacher and principal whispered among themselves with dark expressions. Krista didn't understand what she'd done to get in trouble. When they called her mother though, she realized whatever it was must be really bad. Shockingly, Carissa actually came down to the school herself. She was horrified. Krista had drawn a person with a monstrous face, but the disturbing detail came further down. Even though it was done in thick, waxy crayon, there was no mistaking the anatomically correct male genitalia. In response, Carissa was ready to dole out a severe punishment to her daughter, but the school officials stopped her short. Krista wasn't in trouble. They were concerned she was being sexually abused. Before we talk about some psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Research shows that drawing can be an extremely effective way to express complex experiences. This is especially true for young children who don't often have the language to do so otherwise. They usually use color, shapes, and motifs to represent distressing thoughts or feelings. The symbolism in Krista's picture didn't require much interpretation. Afterward, she went to see her first therapist, but the sessions didn't last long. Carissa grew tired of keeping the appointments and the whole thing was quickly forgotten. Though Krista's family felt certain Ernest had assaulted her, it's unclear if they ever reported him or what the outcome was. In any case, he seemed to disappear after this incident and Grandma Delpha's house returned to being Krista's favorite place on earth. She couldn't find stability anywhere else, especially not at home. After her parents divorced, her mother became a serial dater and her taste in men was questionable to say the least. Little Krista never knew what or who to expect and her anxiety increased with each new guy. Most of them were what Krista later described as quote, touchy-feely, while others weren't so bad, but only the very worst of them seemed to stick around. 
Take Carissa's fourth husband, for example, Danny Thompson. He owned a wood and leather shop where he homemade a device to beat eight-year-old Krista and her sister. Eventually, he seemed to tire of the torture. One day, he told Carissa he didn't like kids, which was already very obvious. To appease him, Carissa took Krista to Grandma Delphi's house and left her there. Although she didn't mean it to be, it was probably the only good thing she ever did for her daughter. Living with Grandma Delpha was undoubtedly the happiest Krista had ever been, but even she couldn't love away the tremendous amount of trauma the girl had already experienced. To cope, Krista did what all the adults around her were doing. She started to drink. When that wasn't enough to numb the pain, she cut herself. Despite these challenges, things were relatively calm at home when compared to the rest of Krista's life. But another storm brewed on the horizon. Her beloved Grandma Delpha was soon diagnosed with cancer. Over the course of a couple years, she became hardly recognizable. Krista did her best to return the years of care and kindness. She even begged to stay home from school to nurse her grandmother. In the end, all she could do was watch as the only person who ever truly loved her disappeared. Grandma Delpha died in 1988 when Krista was 12 years old. Out of everything she'd been through, this seemed the most unfair. Before long, Krista sank into a deep depression. Sights and sounds faded. The rest of the world started to seem so far away from her. At the funeral, Krista felt like she floated above the crowd, watching the service unfold from another dimension. Without Grandma Delpha, nothing mattered anymore. Then, as if to prove it, life threw yet another gut punch her way. Krista was back to living with her mom and Danny, who moved from West Virginia to North Carolina. One day, she went out for a walk around her new neighborhood, trying to get the lay of the land. All of a sudden, she found herself on the ground in the weeds next to the road. She barely had time to register what was happening before a strange man threw himself on top of her. Krista struggled against him, but she could barely move as the man raped her. The next day, she confided in a classmate who convinced her to tell the teacher's aide. The school helped her report the crime to the police and Krista identified the man in a lineup. He was arrested and eventually pleaded no contest to the charges. It's a good thing officials took her seriously because her own mother didn't. Even after the man was serving his sentence, Carissa refused to believe her daughter. It was the last straw. All Krista could think about was how Grandma Delpha never would have doubted her. Dark thoughts clouded her mind. She desperately wanted to be reunited with her grandma. And she only knew one way to make that happen. She shut her eyes and waited for it all to end. Coming up, Krista faces her demons. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults. 
inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com slash cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com cults. And on behalf of everyone here at ParCast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. In 1988, Krista Pike was at a crossroads. The 12 short years she spent on Earth had left her so traumatized that she attempted to die by suicide. She survived, but was forever changed. After that, while there were still occasional flashes of the happy girl she'd once been, a new, darker side started to emerge. Before long, she was flipping between her two moods without warning. She'd go for days without sleeping, unable to slow her racing thoughts. According to Dr. Kenner, a psychologist who later examined Krista, she displayed many classic warning signs of early-onset bipolar disorder. Her erratic behavior might have been made worse by certain coping habits. Krista had been drinking every so often since she was a kid and hoped alcohol would help lull her to sleep. When that didn't work, she tried smoking marijuana. Still, nothing. The only thing that she could do was wait until her body finally gave in. With an unstable sleep pattern like that, it isn't surprising that she started to get into trouble at school. She rarely showed up to class, and when she did, she felt so exhausted she could barely focus. Unfortunately, no one around her recognized what the preteen was going through. To her parents and teachers, she was simply out of control. Eventually, her mother couldn't take it anymore and shipped Krista back to West Virginia to live with her dad, Glenn. Up to this point, he'd spent more time out of her life than in it. Whenever he was around, his go-to punishment had always been a beating, but the method had become a lot less effective over time. Krista used to be afraid of his belts and fists. Now, it only made her dig in her heels. She'd spent all her life subject to the whims of others. She was sick of it. Glenn eventually gave up too and sent Krista back to North Carolina. Thus began a cycle in which Krista was passed back and forth like an unwanted, unwelcome burden. 
In addition to the sting of rejection from her own parents, all the moving back and forth meant she never had the opportunity to make real friends. She was always starting over with classmates, teachers, and neighbors. Any chance she had to form genuine connections was ripped from her grasp. While Krista felt lonelier than ever, her dad worked towards a fresh start. Before long, he remarried and Krista's half-siblings were born. She felt dreadfully jealous of his new family, especially since she didn't get along with her stepmom. It made an unhappy living situation for everyone involved. We don't know many details, but the conflict eventually came to a head. After his wife gave him an ultimatum, Glenn told Krista that she was no longer welcome in his home. Now that Carissa couldn't just send her daughter away when she felt like it, she had to figure out what to do. She settled on trying to be more like a friend than a mom. It didn't seem to matter that Krista was only around 13 years old. The two of them drank and even smoked marijuana together. Still, none of it brought them any closer. Carissa was still far too invested in her own life. By this point, husband number four was long gone. Carissa's new boyfriend wasn't much of an improvement, though. His name was Steve, and he proved as violent and handsy as the rest of them. If he wasn't waking Krista up to beat her, then he loved to, quote, wrestle. By that point, Krista was done taking other people's crap, and she fought back whenever Steve tried to put his hands on her. Carissa hated their brawls, but refused to believe Krista's explanations about why they were fighting. She even took Steve's side when there were witnesses around. Once, Krista and Steve had gotten into it at a barbecue, and he punched her square in the nose right in front of neighbors. One of them reported him to Child Protective Services. Even after that, Carissa still insisted her daughter had lied about the whole thing. Of course, CPS didn't buy it and they ordered Steve not to be alone with Krista. He promptly ignored the ruling and not long after, came at her once again. It's unclear what set him off this time, but he punched her with a belt buckle end of a leather belt. One of Krista's nephews was nearby during the incident. The details are murky, but the child ended up on the ground after Steve punched him too. Seeing the small child absorb the blow of a full-grown man ignited all of Krista's fury. She sprang to her nephew's defense the way she wished someone had done for her. Before she could think twice, Krista pulled out a butcher knife from a kitchen drawer. Steve called her crazy and yelled for her to put it down, his eyes full of fear. Krista pointed the blade at his chest as she gathered up her nephew and fled. Someone must have reported this incident as well because CPS returned. Steve was ordered to move out of the house entirely and Carissa was furious. She believed that was Krista's plan all along. She saw Krista as a selfish brat and a terrible daughter. Throughout it all, Krista was still trying to cope with her intense insomnia. Somehow she discovered that one of the only things that calmed her down was the sound of the ocean. So she got into the habit of hitchhiking to the nearest beach about an hour and a half away. 
Krista would sit on the sand and let the roar of the waves drown out her babbling thoughts. It was the ultimate white noise machine. She'd fall asleep right there on the shore. More and more, Krista started skipping school to go to the ocean. But unlike the other adults in her life, her school's officials noticed how often she went missing. Before long, she was labeled, quote, a child in need of supervision by the juvenile justice system. They took her away from Carissa and sent her to live in a group home for three months with a probation period after that. The intervention did nothing to solve Krista's actual problems, though. After the program, she continued to run away from home. During one of these escapades, she was caught breaking into the concession stand at a Little League field. The minor act of burglary violated her probation, so 14-year-old Krista was sent to Swananoa Juvenile Evaluation Center. The program was specifically designed for teens who were already offenders. Despite her petite frame and baby face, Krista had learned to put up a tough front over the last few years, and Swananoa only made her behave worse. She constantly got into fights and no one cared whether or not she'd been the one to start them. She could have been out of the center in three months, but with each incident, she added more time to her stay. In total, she spent 15 months there. Her experience wasn't all bad though. The highly structured environment helped with many of her bipolar symptoms. She even managed to complete her GED. For the first time in a long time, Krista felt like more than a messed up kid with no future. As her release date approached, her counselors told her about a program called Job Corps. Established as part of President Johnson's War on Poverty, it was meant to provide job training for at-risk youth. The people at Swananoa wanted Krista to go straight there so she wouldn't lose the momentum she'd built up. But Krista hated feeling forced into things and their enthusiasm felt like too much pressure for the 15-year-old. She decided she just wanted to go home. But when she returned, everything about her life was exactly as she'd left it. Only now, she didn't have to go to school, so her days bled together in a collection of empty hours. If there was one thing Krista truly couldn't stand, it was boredom. To fill her time, she got a job, and then another one, and then another one. With just a GED, the best she could hope for was fast food or retail work. It kept her busy, but she was keenly aware that these weren't exactly career opportunities. Back at Swananoa, the counselors helped her understand she wasn't dumb or lazy. She just needed some extra assistance to stay focused. She started to dream about going to college and maybe even med school after that. The cold reality was those ambitions came with a steep price. Krista wasn't great with money and saving that much felt nearly impossible. So she put her goals on a shelf filled with bitter disappointment. By then, she knew the feeling well. Her mother clearly hadn't missed her while she was away. As usual, she was wrapped up in her latest marriage and Krista was invisible once again. Whatever self-esteem she'd built during her time at Swananoa quickly evaporated. At 17, she felt desperate for someone to care for her, even just a tiny bit. And that's when she met her first love. 
We don't know his name or how he and Krista met. All we know is that he'd been recently released from a psychiatric hospital. Whatever his issues were, they didn't stop Krista from falling hard and fast. She brought him home one day and told Carissa he'd be moving in. After years of playing the best pal, Carissa didn't have much of a parental leg to stand on. He lived with them for a while, but it seemed like the situation was tense at best. Eventually, Carissa's latest husband kicked the man out. Still under the influence of her feelings, Krista left with him, even though they had nowhere to go. One night, she was out alone when a stranger attacked her. Like so many years ago, Krista was beaten and raped. Fortunately, a passing car scared off her assailant before he could do anything worse. Krista ran to a nearby friend's house where they called the police and she was taken to the hospital for treatment. As always, Carissa chose not to believe her daughter despite the mountain of evidence before her. The deja vu was too much. Krista's life seemed to be an endless circle of hurt and disappointment. Only the Swananoa counselor's words of encouragement still rang in her head. The Job Corps program called to her like a lighthouse through a storm. Krista decided she'd get out and she'd stay out, no matter what she had to do. Coming up, Krista's dreams crumble. Now, back to the story. At 18 years old, Krista Pike was determined to turn her life around, and Job Corps was her chance to do it. In the summer of 1994, she left behind everything she knew to pursue her future in Knoxville, Tennessee. But she quickly realized the campus wasn't exactly the promised land it was cracked up to be in the promotional materials. Though it sat near the University of Tennessee, Job Corps didn't have any of the same grandeur. Like many public programs for underserved communities, it was terribly mismanaged. The dormitory used to be an old motel and had about as much charm. Maintenance had long since given up the battle against graffiti and nearly every surface had been defaced. Krista might have felt like she was back at Swananoa, surrounded by angry teens with violent past. Only here, they were under less watchful eyes. The Knoxville site in particular was sorely understaffed, and the attendees were often left unsupervised. Krista regretted her choice almost instantly. She felt so homesick she cried nearly every day. And that was exactly what she was doing the first time she spoke to 17-year-old to Daryl Ship. He sat beside her on the curb outside the dumpy complex they called home and asked if she was okay. Krista recognized him from move-in day. He'd been helping folks carry their bags and she couldn't help but notice how easily he handled the heavy luggage. Touched that he cared enough to check on her, she told him how miserable she felt. She missed her friends, even her deadbeat parents. This place wasn't anything like she thought it would be. She just wanted to go home. Tadaryl empathized. He'd grown up an only child in Memphis, and he understood loneliness all too well. He'd felt the same way when he first arrived at the center a couple months ago, but now he had a better lay of the land. Looking into her eyes, Tadaryl promised Krista that if she stayed, 
he'd look out for her. Krista's cheeks warmed under his gaze. He was a handsome guy, but his looks weren't the only attractive thing about him. Krista couldn't put her finger on it. It was more like a feeling. As she studied him, he looked away, suddenly bashful. After a moment of hesitation, he told her he felt like their conversation was fate. They were meant to meet here, together. He'd seen it in his dreams. It was pretty out there for a pickup line, and Krista might have laughed it off, but Tadaro claimed he had proof. She followed him to a friend's room where he asked for, quote, the picture. Apparently, Tadaro had asked his friend to draw the girl from his dream. When Krista looked down at the paper in her hand, her breath caught in her throat. The girl in the picture looked a lot like her. Other people may have found the incident weird or even creepy, but it was possibly the most romantic thing that had ever happened to Krista. Tadaro had basically said she was his dream girl. She'd never felt so special. From that moment on, the pair was inseparable. Tadaro treated her like she was precious, someone worth caring for. His overtures weren't usually as mystical as that first one though. More often, he showed his devotion through violence. Once, the two were in the middle of a fairly narrow hallway while Krista was helping Tadaro take out his braids. At some point, another boy tried to get past them and accidentally bumped into Krista. She barely noticed it, but to Daryl, instantly leapt to his feet. He grabbed the student by the throat and slammed him against the wall. With a razor blade to his face, to Daryl cautioned the boy. If he so much as breathed on Krista again, he'd be sorry. Despite the show of force, Krista smiled. Finally, she'd found the protective love she'd always craved. But though Tadaro made her feel safer than ever, the relationship wasn't quite a fairy tale. Tadaro grew up idealizing his grandparents' marriage, traditional gender roles, and all. Given that, his views on relationships were rather old-fashioned. Namely, he believed a man should be in charge at all times. In the past, Krista had bristled when anyone tried to tell her what she could or couldn't do. Tadaro was different, though. In her mind, he only wanted what was best for her. Still, she couldn't stifle her independent spirit completely. For instance, she knew that Tadaro hated that she smoked pot, but she had no plans to stop. It was one of the few things that made life bearable. Tadaro refused to back down, and whenever he found Krista's stash, he'd flush it. She got furious at him each time, Eventually, her temper got the better of her and the two ended up in a physical fight. Their relationship was clearly dysfunctional, but the couple just chalked it up to passion. When things were good between them, they were really good. They were intimate in every possible way. Well, almost. Tadaro could feel that Krista was holding something back. If he tried to ask her about her home life or her childhood, she immediately shut the conversation down. After years of holding it all at a distance, she didn't know how to talk about her trauma. To Daryl could sense that she'd been through some dark stuff and he wanted to be there for her. It broke his heart to feel like she couldn't open up to him, especially because he told her everything. 
He explained how lonely it was being an only child, how his dad wasn't really around, and how he'd dropped out of high school. He even told her about the gang that tried to recruit him before he found out about Job Corps. He shared things with Krista that he never told anyone, including his unconventional beliefs. Tadaryl's ship was a self-proclaimed Satanist. He had first learned about it back home in Memphis when he was just 11 years old. Some neighborhood friends were into it, and it quickly became a way for the young boy to feel a sense of belonging. To his relief, Krista was very open-minded. She'd always been an outsider herself and didn't have a problem with things others might consider weird. In fact, it only made Tadaro more interesting to her. The ideology sounded appealing, The darkness of it called to the wounded depths of Krista's heart. And she likely isn't the only one. Research shows that kids from abusive backgrounds may be particularly drawn to the idea of Satanism. To make sense of their experiences, victims of childhood abuse often see themselves as bad or evil in some way. Turning to Satan worship can make this seem like something positive, or at least something they consciously chose. Krista joined Daryl in his worship, which didn't actually involve all that much. He had an altar in his closet where they'd sometimes perform rituals or spells. In truth, neither one of them understood what it really meant, but calling on the Dark Prince gave them a sense of power in their otherwise powerless lives. Plus, it added to their mystique around campus. Because even before Krista got there, Tadaryl had established himself as one of the top dogs in the program. Everyone knew better than to mess with him, and as his girlfriend, that extended to Krista too. Or it was supposed to anyway. Krista still had issues with some of the students, first and foremost with a girl named Colleen Slemmer. The 19-year-old had recently come to Knoxville from Orange Park, Florida to study computers. Like Krista, Colleen had struggled in high school and dropped out in the ninth grade. Job Corps was supposed to be her ticket to a better life. She moved in a month or two after Krista and was also seriously disappointed by the state of the program. Not even a month passed before Colleen called her mom, begging to come home. The two girls had so much in common, they should have been good friends, but they got off on the wrong foot. Shortly after Colleen arrived on campus, she found herself in a sticky situation with one of Krista's friends. Allegedly, Colleen slept with the father of the girl's child. According to Krista, she simply told Colleen to watch her back. It might have been meant as well-intentioned advice, but her delivery was harsh at best. Colleen responded in kind, telling Krista to back off and mind her own business. Thanksgiving break was coming up and Krista would have plenty of time to do just that. She was excited to go home and see her friends and family, though she hated to leave Tadaryl behind. He was staying on campus for the holiday. With so many people on vacation, the dorm halls were unusually quiet. Looking around at the handful of other kids who stayed, Tadaryl noticed some students he'd never really met. Colleen was one of them. He heard of her in passing. The two hit it off okay, but it wasn't anything like Tadaryl had with Krista. Still, she was cute, and she was there, and one thing led to another. 
According to Daryl, the pair hooked up. Even though it only happened once, he knew he could never tell Krista. The thought of what she might do terrified him. He tried to play it cool when she got back from break, but she could sense that something was off. For one thing, Colleen was suddenly hanging around a lot more. When Krista asked Daryl about it, he denied everything. He didn't know why Colleen was talking to him, and no, he wasn't interested in her. The new development didn't help the tense situation between the girls. From Krista's point of view, Colleen had already tried to break up one couple, and now she'd set her sights on her and to Daryl. She wasn't about to let Colleen destroy the best thing that had ever happened to her. Not without a fight. Accounts of what happened next vary, but things between Krista and Colleen worsened in the following weeks. According to Colleen's mom, during one of their regular calls, Colleen told her she was being threatened and harassed by someone on campus. She refused to say exactly who. Meanwhile, in Krista's version of the story, Colleen was the aggressor. She claimed that one night she woke up to find Colleen standing at the foot of her bed with a box cutter. When Krista asked what she was doing, Colleen claimed she was looking for Krista's roommate. It's impossible to confirm the details, but to Krista, the specifics didn't seem to matter. In her mind, Colleen was a threat, and she'd do whatever it took to protect her newfound happiness. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back next week with part two as things between Krista and Colleen become downright dangerous. For more information on Krista Pike, we found A Love to Die For by Patricia Springer helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum. Edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells. Fact-checked by Haley Milligan. Researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. And produced by Bruce Katovich. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible, so we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. Cults.